welcome to the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor podcast. I'm Andrew Dick, an attorney with Hall Render, the largest healthcare-focused law firm in the country. Please remember the views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants only and do not constitute legal advice. Today, we will be talking about a unique way for healthcare providers to finance sale leaseback transactions and build the suit facilities using credit tenant leases, or CTLs for short. CTLs have been around for a while, but are becoming more popular in the healthcare industry. Typically, healthcare providers seeking CTL financing will hire an investment bank to assist with the structuring and placement of the CTL bonds. Mesro Financial is one of the leading investment banks in the country with deep expertise placing debt for CTL transactions. Today, we'll, we will be talking with Andrew Minkus, a managing director with Mesero Financial. Andrew, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to have the opportunity to participate. Andrew, before we talk about CTL transactions and Mesero Financial, let's talk a little bit about your background. You're a Midwest guy with an undergraduate and graduate degree in finance. Early in your career, you worked for Newmark Realty Capital. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing there. Yeah, sure. So Newmark is, a, I guess we would call it a full-service commercial mortgage banking firm. I spent about five years there. Uh, my primary responsibility was, you know, originating conventional commercial real estate debt um, associated with a wide range of commercial real estate projects, but I would say primarily for food groups, retail office, multifamily, industrial. I would say much of that debt work was placed with the company's life insurance company correspondence, but we also uh, originated a lot of CMBS and bank executed product, as well as a little bit of hard money and bridge. So that's what I did at Newmark. So after Newmark, you made the move to Lakeshore Management and uh, tell us a little bit about your role there. Yeah. So upon relocating back to Chicago in roughly 2010, I was introduced to a, a local Chicago private equity shop called Lakeshore Management. Lakeshore Management is in the manufactured home community business. Um, which is a fancy term for mobile home parks. That's their sort of asset of choice. Um, they own and operate a significant portfolio of said manufactured homes. And my job there was primarily to, uh, you know, responsible for structuring, sourcing, and doing a variety of, you know, ad hoc due diligence associated with new acquisitions. And then in addition to that, I was also responsible for a variety of just general asset management responsibilities that go along with uh, just managing the overall performance of the portfolio. And Andrew, after you uh, worked uh, at Lakeshore for a while, you made the move to Mesero Financial, where you're where you're currently at uh, in Chicago. Talk a little bit about that transition and how you were introduced to Mesero. So the, the gig at Lakeshore was actually kind of an interim role. Um, I was sort of plugging a hole. Um, due to some abundance of work at the time. And I could see that role was quickly becoming a permanent role. And it was at that same time that actually the gentleman that I worked for in San Francisco at Newmark had introduced me to my current division head. Um, they had met at a conference and um, we kind of hit it off and he had just started up the group here at Mesero. You know, I was quickly fascinated with the opportunity. I, I could tell that you know, this opportunity at Mesero was an opportunity to <clears throat> just touch so many different segments of the market. You know, this job here is really uh, a job in real estate. It's a job in structured finance. It's a job in public finance. It's a job in corporate finance. So it really has uh, just many interesting uh, tenants to it. Yeah, that's why I made the leap over to Mesero. So that was back in uh, July of 2010. And tell us a little bit about 
Mesero, its history, and uh, the, the scope of uh, services offered by the company? So Mesero is a, a diversified financial services firm. We're sort of segmented into two main divisions. We're an investment management, kind of asset management house uh, on one side and uh, capital markets investment banking on the other side. We've been around since 1937. We're headquartered here in Chicago. We've got about 20 offices scattered across the country, a couple international offices as well. You know, culturally, we kind of operate like a family office. We're private. We're 100% employee-owned. We always have been. I think currently we've got about 16 sleeves of business, uh, many of which are highly complementary to one another. Um, I've been at Mesero uh, for coming up about nine years. Uh, you know, I work in the credit tenant lease and structured debt products group. As part of the leadership team here, you know, my role is origination, structuring, debt placement, bond debt placement. Um, we originate and structure a lot of conventional CTL debt, and we also spend a lot of time with a variety of other, you know, structured products such as CTL B notes and rated bifurcated ground lease financings and ad hoc project finance situations. Um, we securitize special tax district work. Uh, we've done a little bit of asset-backed securities work. I would say a couple of years ago, we also started um, a little side initiative, which we generically refer to as our P3 initiative. It's actually referred to as our infrastructure and project finance group. You know, I'm part of the committee there. And as a result, I guess I pay a particular focus uh, to transactions, CTL transactions and the like that have an element or touch the municipal space, the higher education space, the healthcare space. Um, that sort of thing. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk with you today is because of um, your deep expertise in uh, CTL transactions and uh, Mesro's reputation in the industry uh, as being one of the leaders in, in terms of facilitating CTL transactions. Tell us a little bit about Mesro's CTL expertise and, and how many people are in the group and, and give us a little bit more detail on, on that. You know, the CTL product has been around for probably 30 to 40 years, but I will say the business has evolved tremendously over that period of time. You know, back in the day, uh, we, and by we, not necessarily me, but some of the <clears throat> older generation, you know, spent a lot of their time doing a lot of retail transactions, you know, Walgreens and CVSs and bank branches and things of that nature. You know, it was a fairly commoditized asset class and not very unique in terms of structure. And I think that's kind of how the business ticked along for probably, you know, 20, 25 years. But over the last 10 years, it's evolved uh, really away from retail uh, for a lot of obvious reasons and more into dealing with government credits and project finance and corporate office facilities and facilities leased to municipalities and P3 type project. And, you know, the other thing that's been kind of interesting just from a development perspective is the asset class has largely ignored real estate, right? Going back 30, 40 years, I would say over the last 10 years, we've started to ignore that fact and we've started to pay quite a bit of attention to real estate um, when and where applicable. And uh, we've started to do some really unique things and, and solve some really unique problems that historically uh, nobody really had a solution for. So it's been kind of a, a fun uh, and interesting evolution. But when we started the group, there were three of us originally. Uh, we've got about 10 now. We did a little over $2 billion in production last year, uh, which is a number we're pretty proud of. I guess by way of production volume, that does put us as the, the largest CTL group in the space. And I, I think I would attribute a lot of that success to the fact that we run a different business model here. Just being a full service investment bank, you know, we have some really 
unique and complementary capabilities at Mazaro. You know, we're kind of known on the street for being a bond house. You know, fixed income is sort of the one of the big drivers of our firm. And we've spent a lot of time and resources to build up our distribution platform, what we would call our, you know, sales and trading force. And we've developed unbelievably deep relationships within the Quib marketplace. Quib is an acronym that stands for Qualified Institutional Buyer. So we just have access uh, to a lot more capital. We're closer to the money than any of our competitors. And we also do a lot of regular way fixed income business. So we really have our hand on the pulse of the market far more so than a lot of our competition. We're also very creative, structurally speaking. Um, we talked a little bit about the various internal resources here. You know, we're also very big in public finance, and there are a lot of synergies and correlations between what they do in that department and what we do in our department. And in many instances, we're sort of melding our capabilities, personnel to pursue transactions. And then the other thing that's kind of nice and unique about Mesero is we have a balance sheet. And we got a lot of great support from the firm, and we have access to firm capital to help support some of these CTL situations. So that's uh, kind of a rather unique element just looking back at the business model. Well, uh, Andrew, uh, what I've learned over the years is that the CTL space is very, it's it's a small group of of folks that work on these transactions. And uh, there isn't a lot of information out there if if you search the web. So for our listeners, Talk a little bit about what is a credit tenant lease and what makes it unique when you compare it to a traditional mortgage loan, for example. Unlike a traditional mortgage loan, the primary underwriting consideration for a CTL is that of the underlying credit quality of the tenant or the underlying user. As opposed to with a traditional mortgage loan, the primary underwriting consideration are the real estate fundamentals and the local real estate metrics. You know, CTLs holistically are, are priced and treated and structured more akin to that of an investment grade rated corporate bond or an investment grade rated municipal bond as opposed to, say, a mortgage investment. There's a unique set of, you know, guidelines and principles that sort of govern what we do and how we structure these bond transactions. And some of those parameters are fairly unique again, compared with that of a traditional mortgage. So for example, some of these unique parameters would include things such as, you know, we can underwrite down to a 1-0 debt service coverage. We can underwrite up to 100% of value. If it's a construction project, we have no loan to cost basis constraints per se. These instruments are typically fixed rate. They're long dated. I mean, we could go out 40, 50 years if we like the asset enough. So for these types of reasons, it allows us to produce some really efficient results some really unique results compared with a traditional mortgage loan for the various transaction participants. But really, the the conversation centers wholly around, uh, at least it starts and predominantly centers around underlying credit quality rather than the real estate. The real estate is a secondary consideration. And you talked a little bit about some of the loan-to-value considerations that that would be involved in a mortgage loan transaction. But but on a CTL, there are scenarios where you could loan more than 100% of, of the project cost, for example, on a new construction project, right? I mean, is is there a limit on how much these uh, CTL lenders will, will actually loan on a particular transaction? You know, I would say the outside constraint is really on value much more so than loan to project cost. So the answer is really no. Um, when it comes to loan to project costs, we don't have sensitivities about cash out financing and or how that capital is going to be applied um, to the operation. 
um, as opposed to a mortgage investor that's going to probably be highly sensitive to those types of parameters. So if the economics are such that it produces a result that is equal to 150% of project costs, let's say, for example, we will lend 150% of project costs, so long as it meets the rest of the guidelines and principles that, you know, we have to meet. What are some of the other benefits, Andrew, to the CTL structure? For example, is it possible to get a fixed rate, lease rate for the 20 years, for example, which is almost unheard of in, in, in the traditional financing market? I mean, it seems like you could lock in a really attractive interest rate for a long period of time. Am I thinking about this correctly? Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it any better. I think that's one of the primary benefits, right, to the key transaction participants, right? It's really an exercise to come up with the most favorable constant, whether it's a lease constant or a debt constant. Even if, if we're backing into a rent constant that highly exceeds that of quote unquote market rent, right, given the local real estate parameters, that's not something we're going to be particularly sensitive to. I would say we're largely ambivalent to that, right? If it's just a means of getting a more attractive attachment point, in other words, producing an unconventional amount of leverage for the underlying user, then that's what we'll do. Or contrary to that, it can work in the opposite way, where the goal might be to get the rent constant down as low as possible. And perhaps the underlying user is only looking to raise enough money to build the project, which might be far less than market value. This would be an excellent opportunity to do that. And all of the product is long dated and it's all fixed rate. So really, the longer, the better in our universe. And when we think of credit tenant leases, I almost always think about uh, a tenant that has an investment grade credit rating. Talk a little bit about the underwriting requirements um, for a CTL. Do, do we have to find a, a tenant that has an investment grade credit profile or or can we can we go out and get a credit rating? How does that work? Yeah, a couple of comments. Uh, that's a really good question, actually. I would say that's one common misconception in the space. But let me start by saying the typical credit profile, yes, right? It's of investment grade quality, although there are a handful of exceptions to that. So exception number one, we've done a handful of what we would call high yield CTLs or NEIC3, NEIC4 type CTL products. Now, the appetite for that paper is entirely different. It speaks to a completely different audience um, and those deals take on a completely different you know, shape and color, but it's not necessarily threshold in nature if you have uh, a slightly weaker credit. But even stepping aside from that, you know, not a lot of people realize there's a lot of great public and private credits out there that aren't rated, right? And just because these credits or these entities or these municipalities or healthcare systems don't carry a credit rating, that doesn't mean they don't have good credit considerations. So in many instances, you know, we're able to involve a rating agency into the process and we're able to rate the CTL transaction itself, not to be confused with the underlying credit. Yes, that's the primary criteria for coming up with a result, but it's the transaction itself that's getting rated. And in doing so, sometimes we can even generate a rating elevation above and beyond the underlying credit of the underlying user, right? Because the transaction rating takes into account two things. Number one, the credit support, right, for the transaction, as well as the real estate support, which as a naked CTL, right, we're not really taking into account the real estate, at least from an NAIC perspective. Andrew, talk a little bit about NAIC and what that means. So so it's my understanding that those are guidelines 
used by the insurance industry. So for example, if a life insurance company wanted to make a, a CTL loan, they would be subject to those guidelines. Is that is that right? Yeah, it, it's really the it's the risk capital charge designation that that's referring to. So there's a scale between one and six, um, one being the lowest designation, which carries the lowest risk capital charge, six being the highest designation, which carries the highest risk capital charge. Um, the NEIC concept really only applies to U.S.-based life insurance companies, which happen to be the primary audience for this asset class. But yeah, when a life insurance company, a U.S. life insurance company, purchases a CTL asset or any fixed income asset, um, it does receive NEIC designation treatment. So the lower the risk capital designation, the more attractive the asset is to the investor. In other words, the more competitive the interest rate's going to be, right? Because it, it, it dictates how much capital they either have to or don't have to keep dry on the balance sheet, right? And the idea is to not keep dry powder on the balance sheet because that money just sits there and it doesn't get deployed. So typically NEIC1 and NEIC2 are the two characterizations that refer to an investment grade rated asset. So anything in the A category, A, double A, triple A would typically fall into the NEIC one bucket and anything in the triple B category would fall into the NEIC two bucket. And so we've talked about life insurance companies making CTL loans or, or purchasing the loans. Talk a little bit about the other types of companies that would make a CTL loan or buy a CTL loan beyond a life insurance company. So in addition to LifeCo, um, pension money finds this asset class pretty attractive. Um, we've sold and distributed a handful of product to various uh, bond funds and mutual funds, alternative asset managers. There's a good bit of religious money out there uh, that finds these assets pretty attractive. And then, you know, some of the structured product vehicles that might be situated next to a conventional CTL or maybe underneath in a subordinate capacity. Uh, those types of instruments have broad appeal within the hedge fund community as well. So. Yeah, it's not just the life insurance companies that are, are taking this product down and, and parking it in their portfolio. And in, on the other side of the table, uh, who are the, the typical tenants? We've talked about um, municipalities, nonprofits. Uh, most of our audience, they're going to be healthcare providers or, or uh, folks who develop healthcare facilities. Talk a little bit about who the borrower or the, the tenant could be in a CTL transaction. Yeah, in terms of the underlying users, um, you know, like I was saying, this business has evolved quite a bit over the years. But I would say the lion's share of the product that we see and that we're involved with today is going to involve, of course, healthcare systems. I would absolutely put that sector at the top of the list, uh, just given a lot of the trends in that space right now. You know, any number of good corporate credits, whether it's a tech, a pharma, you know, we do quite a bit with uh, the auto sector in Michigan, for example. We've financed a lot of headquarters assets for a couple of insurance companies, a couple of healthcare credits, uh, Unilever, Verizon, companies like that. Um, higher education is another uh, sector that's picking up quite a bit of steam and, and, and starting to generate an appreciation for uh, what we do in the financing space, whether it's a student housing facility or a classroom or administrative facility. Nonprofits are potential good candidates, research institutions, cultural institutions, governmental entities, of course, local governments, regional governments, state governments, and, um, you know, really anything that sort of takes on that P3 profile, right? P3 meaning public-private partnership. And... Um... 
talk a little bit about how a healthcare provider could use the CTL structure. When I've worked on these transactions, we've we've primarily used the CTL structure uh, for build-to-suit medical office buildings, for example, $30 million medical office building that will be uh, master leased to a, a nonprofit healthcare system that has a AA credit rating, for example. But it but a CTL transaction could also be used for a sale leaseback. I mean, talk a little bit about the scope of uh, uh, transaction structures that you're seeing in the market. Yeah, so there really are no limitations to your point um, in terms of you know transaction structure as well as product type. Um, so we're in, involved in many transactions that involve the sale and leaseback of an asset. We do a lot of build to suit work. We finance a lot of facilities that are just getting renewed. Um, so a straight recapitalization, we would call that. Also a lot of just organic acquisition work. And you know, again, like the instrument can be applied to any product type, a headquarters, an auxiliary medical office building, uh, a hospital, a central plant, right? A utility plant that's servicing a healthcare campus, a data center. We don't even necessarily need hard collateral per se. So for example, we finance uh, tenant improvement leases, you know, with essentially no real property, for example, um, a licensing agreement, things of that nature. So again, the, the the scope is fairly broad in terms of just the application of the product. Andrew, when I think of CTLs, I think of a larger transaction, 30 million plus. Is that a misconception or, you know, what is, when does it make sense to use a CTL? What is the smallest CTL you've worked on to, to the largest, for example? Yeah, good question. I, I think I'd relegate that into the misconception category as well. So, I mean, look, I don't run around the country uh, mentioning this, although maybe I do now that I'm on the podcast, but the smallest transaction we've ever done is, you know, south of 2 million bucks. So I would say our sweet spot is probably in the 25 to $300 million range. The largest transaction that we've put together is a little bit north of $650 million. We have two 10-figure assignments that we've recently been mandated on. So there's really no limitation. Um, you know, we try not to let our egos get in the way. If it's a nice, clean piece of business, uh, you know, we're happy to have it, even if it's a small transaction. But also, if it's a substantial transaction, we certainly have the capabilities to handle that as well. Great. And uh, talk a little bit about how uh, some of the CTLs are structured in, in terms of uh, the amortization schedule. I've I've seen uh, CTLs where the lease is fully amortizing, meaning that at the end of the 25-year the lease term, the asset uh, is, is effectively owned by the tenant. But I know that there, there are ways to structure CTLs where that may not be fully amortizing. So talk about the, that structure in general. Yeah. So... I touched a little bit in the beginning just about the general evolution of the space and the business. And I mean, the direct answer to the question, which we get quite often is, do CTL loans need to be fully amortizing? The answer is a resounding no. Now, having said that, the conventional guidelines, right, that guide what we do and how we do it, technically require a conventional CTL to self-liquidate or have a balloon not to exceed an amount equal to 5% of initial par. However, there are many ways to extend the amortization now. 
So historically, that didn't really happen very often. There's a synthetic insurance product called residual value insurance and or balloon note guarantee program that's been around for some time, but never really utilized in a very meaningful way. Uh, but in addition to that, you know, that's really why we started this structured products initiative about four years ago. And we've underwritten a little over $4 billion within that initiative. And the best way to think about it is a basket of solutions that allows us to provide for extended amortization. And we do this by way of structuring Peripassu A2 notes and zero coupon B notes and pick bonds and residual certificates and all sorts of more esoteric creative structuring work. They're really hybrid securities that are supported with both good credit during the lease term, as well as some real estate, right? I talked a little bit in the beginning about how the industry largely ignored real estate for many, many years. We're no longer ignoring real estate when and where applicable. And these types of structures can serve a variety of different benefits, really. They can, of course, be used to produce more leverage. They can be used to produce more cash flow. They can be used to ratchet down a rent constant. They can be used to produce, in some cases, a more favorable tax outcome. So and or any permutation of those potential benefits. So it's been just a really interesting trend and development in the space, as I say, when and where applicable. Andrew, over the years when I've worked on CTLs, uh, some of the healthcare providers that I represent will, will insist upon a purchase option at some point during the term of the lease. Maybe it's in year 10 or 15 if it's a 25-year CTL. I know that that sometimes those can be challenging to structure. Talk about purchase options and CTL transactions. How how are those viewed in the market and, and how do you set those up from your perspective? So I think you're right to, uh, you know, suggest that purchase options can introduce uh, some challenges. You know, they're not, they're not easy to structure around. I guess the, the best thing I would say is they need to be thought through carefully up front. And there are different ways to structure around a purchase option. I think I think a lot of it hinges on the relationship between landlord and tenant, assuming they're unaffiliated. That's not always the case, right? Perfectly fine if they're affiliated entities. Um, that's more of a synthetic arrangement. But I think we need to just appreciate perpetual ownership versus tenant reversion, right? What happens to the asset at the end of the term? Who's the beneficial user? I think the cleanest way to deal with purchase options, at least when you have two unaffiliated parties on each side of a lease, is if the purchase option carries an obligation by which the buyer tenant is obligated to assume the existing debt, right? If they can't come to an agreement on the purchase price economics that allowed the debt to be satisfied, paid off, albeit with Maycol, then they get the right to assume the existing debt package which is not necessarily a bad outcome because we're putting together some pretty efficient, some pretty attractive financing, at least we would humbly think. That's probably the easiest and cleanest way to deal with a purchase option. Now, that introduces all sorts of privity into the loan documents. Again, that's why it really you really have to appreciate the relationship up front, how open book is the relationship, which I realize is a topic maybe we'll uh, touch on a little bit later. But absent the ability to do that, what we would be forced to do is structure call optionality into the debt instrument to mirror that of the purchase optionality under the lease. That's not an insurmountable hurdle. It's a more challenging hurdle. It's a less efficient hurdle. Call optionality can be very expensive. 
right? Which kind of ripples through the entire structure. And, you know, it's going to impact the landlord's economics. And of course, it's going to impact the tenant's economics. So I think some of the considerations there are, you got to think about how we're going to structure the call option. At what point in the structure does that call option and corresponding purchase option come into play? Is it a one-time right? Is it an ongoing right? Of course, the further down uh, the road uh, you introduce that purchase option, the more favorable the economics of that purchase option are going to be. You know, if you're looking at a 25-year term and there's purchase option risk within five years, somewhere close to par, that's going to be a very, very expensive endeavor. So economics is one consideration. There's also a consideration of familiarity. So CTLs are primarily structured on a taxable basis. Not always. They can be structured on a tax-exempt basis at times as well. It depends on where we're distributing this debt instrument. So if we're distributing the debt into the taxable, you know, corporate muni market, I would say generally there's less resilience to absorb call option risk in a transaction. Whereas the tax example, like the classic muni market, they're probably a little bit more resilient, right, to call optionality at various points in the structure. So I think how the deal structured, what the plan of finance is, where we're planning to distribute the instrument all comes into play. It's really just a long way of saying it's absolutely not a threshold issue, but it's a significant consideration and it, and it can introduce some challenges. But usually it's just a challenge that can be overcome with economics. Does that make sense? It does. It does. That's helpful. And one of the questions I get from my clients is, uh, let's say it's a larger health system with multiple hospitals they're they're working on a medical office building transaction uh build to suit um one of the questions i would get is well why wouldn't the health system just issue bonds and then take take the capital and and use it to build the medical office building it seems to me andrew that that the ctl is designed for so that the the health system for example in my world wouldn't have to go through a bond issue it's it's a it's a simpler approach for one-off transactions, for example. Am I thinking about that the right way? Yeah, I, I, I would fundamentally agree with that. Potentially, there are a few different reasons. At least, you know, we conduct a lot of surveys to generate this type of feedback, of course. And some of the reasons uh, that we find that a healthcare system, for example, that would endeavor to do something like this rather than, you know, issue a direct bond is, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a quicker process. So sometimes it's just a function of speed of execution, right? To do something direct, to structure a public offering probably takes a little bit longer. It's going to make a little bit more noise. It's probably going to involve more transaction costs, more layers of legal costs, a little bit more diligence. You know, rating agency involvement is something that you probably aren't going to avoid if you do a public offering or a direct deal. Whereas on a CTL, if the underlying credit already carries an independent rating, we can sort of lean on that. So it's faster. It's a little cleaner. Typically, size of the deals is sometimes a big factor too, right? I mean, let's say it's only a $20 million assignment. Not that there's anything wrong with a $20 million assignment, but to go through the rigmarole of structuring a public offering, it might not be worth it. So I think for some of those reasons, sometimes there are internal accounting considerations or sensitivities um, that might trigger one structure over another. You know, the other thing that comes up, this isn't necessarily about you know, direct or or indirect, but more of a taxable versus tax exempt. But when you finance a CTL on a taxable basis, there are no use restrictions with respect to the asset. 
And that's something that comes into play on healthcare assets quite a bit, right? So if it doesn't meet the private activity test, or if you just want general flexibility with the asset, um, you know, the CTL is a much friendlier format for that. So those would be a few reasons, at least that we hear from some of the healthcare clients, why they decide to go with, uh, with the CTL. And it's becoming really in vogue because, you know, there are all these auxiliary MOB facilities, you know, 20,000 feet here, 30,000 feet here, and they're smaller assignments, 15 million, 25 million. So it's just a little bit cleaner. It's just a little bit faster, um, probably a little bit smoother. Yeah. That, that's helpful. When we think about build to suit transactions and using a CTL, it seems like there are a couple of approaches that I'm seeing in the market, Andrew, and I want to get your thoughts. Sometimes the health system will have a new facility in mind. It will uh, engage a developer on a fee-for-service basis, and, and the health system may call you at, at Mesero and say, help me find uh, the capital for this CTL transaction. Another approach that's becoming common is that some of the healthcare real estate developers will will call upon a health system and say, hey, I know you have this new project in mind. Let me bring the CTL financing along and, and package all this up for you. What are you seeing in the market and what are the pros and cons there? It seems like if the health system went directly to you, it may be a more transparent process potentially, or if if they use the developer model and the developer brings you along, I guess the health system would need to just make sure they, they fully understand how the CTL is being set up. Am I thinking about this the right way? Yeah, I think you are. I think there's really two general approaches to this when there's a private sector developer involved. And it really centers around whether the private sector is going to host more of an open book process or whether they're going to host more of a closed book process. And there's nothing wrong with either process. Let me just start by saying that. We probably do as much on an open book basis as we are involved in transactions that are put forward in a closed book basis. So no allegiance. I, I can't say one's better than the other. It really depends, again, on the commercial relationship between the landlord and the tenant, right? Between the private sector and the tenant. And I think a lot of it hinges on eventual benefit of beneficial ownership as well. But, you know, when you have a private sector developer that's building a facility for a system and there's really no plan on behalf of the private sector to own the asset, right, beyond the lease term, right? This is what I would call more of just a pure structured finance deal. And the private sector developer, although they may technically be the landlord, right, for 15 or 20 or 25 years, they're really more of a straw landlord and acting in a fee development capacity. Um, this is probably a good scenario that would give rise to an open book process, right? Everybody kind of sitting around the table, negotiating all the docs in concert, the lease documents, the loan documents. The developer's really just working for a fee at that point. Right, because 100% of the rental income is probably being zapped into that CTL instrument anyway. So I would say it's probably more common uh, that we see that open book process, and there's complete clarity and transparency from all sides, you know, into the total economic arrangement. And everybody's completely incentivized, you know, to come to the right place. Whether it's enhancing a certain lease provision, everybody can see that it's not just benefiting the landlord; it's benefiting the tenant as well. Blah blah blah. Now, we could have a scenario, we'll call it scenario two, where you have a private sector developer, there was an RFP that was disseminated, and four different developers you know, responded to the RFP, each with their own tract of land, 
right? That's been in the family for 20 years. And there happens to be one piece of land that's highly desirable for the underlying healthcare system. It's right next to their main hospital or whatever. And this private sector developer has no interest in giving up the ownership, right, to the underlying healthcare system. They want to keep it in the estate and keep it for the family. That's probably more of an arm's length traditional closed book type process, right? The landlord has its deal and the tenant has to negotiate its deal and everybody's going to be focused on quote unquote market terms, both of which can be perfectly fair, but that would be a process that perhaps there would be less transparency, right? The developer may not feel obligated to disclose all of its economics. Now, where that gets a little tricky is in that scenario, the developer might see how beneficial it may be to utilize CTL financing to finance this type of project. And in doing so, might ask the tenant for a few things um, to make the lease, you know, hyper efficient for purposes of fetching the most efficient financing. And, you know, that's where the tenant might say, well, you're asking for a little bit of an off market provision here. What are you going to do for me? Right. Or, or why do you need that? Right. I, I, I've been a tenant on a variety of medical office facilities and I haven't had to sign a lease with provisions X, Y, and Z. So it's usually, it doesn't produce the smoothest negotiation, but again, there's nothing wrong with the closed book process. We probably see half and half. Again, it really just hinges on the relationship between landlord and tenant and really what's happening at the end of that lease term. No, that that was helpful. I mean, and, and if it's a closed book process, maybe the tenant is comfortable with the economics and uh, feels like it's it's still getting a, a good deal, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. So, Andrew, as we wrap up here, uh, talk a little bit about the future of the CTL market. It seems like there, there's there been an upward trend and it's becoming more popular. Where, where do you see the CTL market over the next three to five years? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, we get asked a lot, you know, what we think the size of our market is. And, you know, most of the transactions are structured on a private placement basis. So, Nobody really has access to that data, or at least the real data. I think right now, it's folks are led to believe that it's a four to six billion dollar kind of market, and uh, I think it's safe to say that if you asked us that question 15 years ago, it probably would have been half of that. So I think a lot of that is due to some of the creativity and some of the evolution that we talked about in the space, and I think to a large extent, um, we might be responsible for a lot of that. So I think where there are creative minds and and well-structured product. I think this is a segment of the market that's going to continue to grow. I mean, I can tell you, historically speaking, from a performance perspective, this is one of the best asset classes in history uh, because you've got great credit support. You've got good liquidation features, in many cases, self-liquidating features, but not always, um, and good real estate support and a lot of uh, asset essentiality to so I think the trend lines look good. They look positive. You know, we're constantly coming up with innovative and imaginative new structures to implement CTLs and attach to CTLs, like a lot of these B notes that we underwrite. Um, I mean, I can tell you a lot of the conventional CTL product wouldn't have existed if not for some of those unique esoteric structures that we put into the market. So I, I think it's going to be uh, an in vogue asset class uh, for some time. You know, in many cases, it's it's the only way to finance these types of assets because a lot of these assets are what I would call non-commodity in nature. And it's really hard to finance non-commodity real estate assets. And what I mean by non-commodity is like 
you know, specialty real estate, like hospitals and data centers and central plants and funky things like that. You know, the mortgage markets, the conventional mortgage, traditional mortgage loan markets, they really choke on product like that. So um, for that reason, this will always be uh, around in my humble opinion, but I really think it's going to continue to grow. At what clip, I'm not sure. That's my two cents on the market. Andrew, this has been a great conversation. Uh, really appreciate your insights here. Where can uh, our, our audience learn more about you and Mesero Financial? Yeah, so you can certainly visit uh, our webpage. Our department has a site on our website. That's at meserofinancial.com. You can go to the CTL and Structured Debt Products page. And, uh, you know, myself, I can be reached um, either by phone, 312-595-7922, uh, or via email. That's A Minkus, M I N K U S, at meserofinancial.com. And uh, if you can't get me, uh, feel free to reach out to uh, either of my two partners, Stephen Jacobson and Nat Sager. Stephen Jacobson can be reached at 312. 312- Five nine five seven nine two zero, and Nat can be reached at three one two five nine five seven nine two four. Well, thanks again, Andrew, and thanks to our audience for listening to the podcast on your Apple or Android device. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave feedback for us. We also publish a newsletter called the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor. To be added to the list, please email me at adick at hallrender.com. <laughs>